walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 44. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. I'm recording this on July 1st, 2020. This year is officially halfway over. I can hear fireworks erupting in the background periodically. And while it feels like there are few things worth celebrating right now, being closer to the end of 2020 is one of them. While some, particularly those based in the EU, are finally returning to the Pilgrim Roads in reduced numbers, and if you're in that position, know that I wish you well, despite my seething envy, most of us continue our vigils at home. It is a year of reflecting in place. One only needs to take a quick look at any of the Pilgrim Facebook groups to see legions of pilgrimage vets reposting past pictures and describing walks of long ago. It's a cliche, and linguistic malpractice actually, to see a crisis as simultaneously danger and opportunity. But it occurred to me that these months of quarantine, for all of their downsides, and there are significant ones, have provided an opportunity for many of us to not only reflect on those past pilgrimages, but also to construct something from those memories. There's something about the act of pilgrimage that demands a written postscript, stages walked with a pen or on a keyboard. For some, the goal is to craft something that could be published for a wider audience. For others, it's a personal process, an urgent need to bring structure to inchoate memories. But for all the necessity, it can be so hard to get started, so hard. How many of us have spent weeks, months, years even, hearing that call to write but feeling intimidated or lost about where to begin, how to take that tangled mass and give it life? In service to that, I wanted to bring together a couple of Camino authors in conversation to discuss their publishing experience and some key considerations to weigh when writing about your own pilgrimage. And I don't know that I could have found a better pair than Beth Gisino and Steve Watkins. Not only are their Pilgrim Journals great reads, they also have thought deeply about the craft of writing. Beth actually mentors and coaches authors. While Steve has continued to hone his memoirist chops as he approaches the publication of his second book, The King of High Banks Road. Even if you're not thinking about your own writing, I think their conversation is an insightful look into the genre of pilgrimage books. So keep listening. It's worth your time. That was a lot of words when I probably could have just said, Beth Jacino, Steve Watkins. Stay tuned. I'm joined now by Beth Jacino and Steve Watkins. Beth is the author of Walking to the End of the World, A Thousand Miles on the Camino de Santiago, and also a developmental editor, writing coach, and publishing consultant. Steve is a missionary-focused journalist, the author of Pilgrim Strong, Rewriting My Story on the Way of St. James, and the founder of Tranquility Base in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. Thanks to both of you for talking with me. Great to be here. Thank you, Doug. It's great to talk with you. This is Steve's second tour of duty on the podcast, so good to have you back as well. We'll start here. The goal of this conversation is to talk 
both about your writing and then about writing about pilgrimage in general, because there have been so many books published and self-published about personal experiences on pilgrimage and especially the Camino de Santiago. What drove you to contribute your own stories? And what do you think drives so many others to write, not just for a, a private journal or for the consumption of friends and family, but for the wider world? And Steve, maybe we'll, we'll start with you on this. Well, Dave, it was kind of a unique circumstance and situation that drove me to write because I had gone on pilgrimage after several years of being personally in a pretty dark place. I was one of those victims of the, of the 2008 recession back all those years ago, and honestly had experienced a tremendous amount of loss in personal life and professional life. And, and that dark time went on for a few years. I subsequently discovered the Camino about the time that I was kind of coming out of that dark time. And for the first time in my life, I found myself in a place where I really had kind of a blank slate. Uh, there was a chance to start anew, to figure out what was ahead. And for the first time in my life, I didn't really, you know, I didn't know the answers to those questions. Hmm. So I went on Camino, had this incredible 40-day experience. And as incredible as it was, there were no grand revelations or no epiphanies, you know, when, when I walked into the square. It was the culmination of an amazing experience. But the answers to the questions that I was seeking weren't necessarily answered. So I came home, began to look at the notes. I'm just, you know, a natural note taker. And I began to look at the notes that I had taken along the way. I was a journalist by profession, had never written a book, but the notes that I had taken looked like chapters in a book to me, <laughs> looked like they could be organized in such a way as to put something together. And so... I honestly began to write to figure out what the Camino had meant to me. Mm -hmm. I was not doing it as a commercial enterprise. I wasn't really thinking much beyond trying to still figure out. I mean, this was the next step in a pilgrimage experience for me. Seeing those words on paper and, and going through the process of thinking that story through and as it evolved, it became a little bit, you know, it became a little bit more than that. Mm -hmm. So the writing was essentially the meaning-making process. Absolutely. How about you, Beth? I mean, I think it doesn't surprise me that the Camino has so many people who want to write about it. When I think about the things that make a great story that we like to share with our friends and with our communities, like, the Camino has all of that there. It's the culture. It's the physical challenge. It's the community of interesting people you meet. It's the time for introspection and a personal journey. The Camino is delightful in that it is both exotic and very relatable. But at the same time, I very intentionally didn't just go saying, I'm not planning on writing a book. I went saying specifically, I am not going to write a book. <laughs> I am a professional editor and book consultant. I work with books all day. The Camino was my sabbatical and my chance to get away from thinking about how to put words on the page. And so I took pictures and I took notes and I journaled a lot, but it was entirely for me during the 90-day journey that I had. I got home and that was still what I believed, but then two things happened. The first is that I realized as I was talking to people in my everyday life, how much I had learned. I love to plan. I love to be prepared for things. And so 
in 2015, when we went on our first Camino trip, I had tried in advance to find every book I could or every resource I could. And five years ago, there wasn't as much out there as there is now. And I wanted to know what it would be like. I wanted to know what other people had experienced coming from a different culture and walking this long path. And I found a lot of books that had a lot of personal journey experiences. They talked a lot about, you know, what was going on in their heads and what issues they had brought with them and how they were overcoming them. And those were beautiful and great and inspiring. But what I had wanted to find was practical information. I wanted people to tell me how they knew where to stay at night or how they figured out where to eat. Or as a woman, most important question, where are the bathrooms? <laughs> and nobody had talked about the bathrooms. So I had all of this knowledge that I thought people would want to know. And then I also had this experience. When I got home, people, you know, I would say, oh my gosh, I just did this amazing three-month journey and I just walked across two countries. And the number of people who came to me and said, oh, I could never do that. Mm. I'm not into extreme sports <laughs> or I could never do that. You know, that sounds so hard. This is a podcast, so you can't see me, but I promise you I am a klutz and not an athlete by any stretch of the imagination. I think yoga is an extreme sport. <laughs> and so when all of these people said, I would love to do something like that, but I could never do it. And these two experiences kind of bounced off of each other. And I kept thinking, I have something I can share here. And it's not, oh, let me tell you about how I walked the Camino. It's, let me tell you about how you can walk the Camino through the filter of what I did. The first time I sat down to think about what I wanted to write, some of the first words that I wrote on paper were, I want to write a travelogue that masquerades as a memoir. That's interesting. So on the most basic level, it seems like Steve's book came from a position of Steve wanting to look deeper into Steve. Mm -hmm. And Beth's book came about thinking about like, how can I make this available to others? Steve, I don't know about you. I think that you and I have talked about the fact that your book is much more the heart of the Camino, and my book is much more the facts of the Camino. Huh. Is another way to think about that. I mean, to a degree, I think that's right, Dave. Everything that I write generally is written from a standpoint of some degree of faith. I mean, there's a faith message somewhere in my writing at some point, and I think that was present in Pilgrim Strong, too. I began kind of looking deeper into what the experience had meant to me, and trying to find out where it was leading, you know, the rest of my life. But also Pilgrim Strong is a book that is as much about brokenness as it is about the pilgrimage experience. There's a quote by an author named Sheila Walsh, and she said, my brokenness is a better bridge for connecting with people than my pretend wholeness ever will be. And that was a big part of the message of Pilgrim Strong, writing about that experience of brokenness that I had had prior to the Camino, the process of healing leading up to it, and then going to, to figure out what it all meant. But I wanted to connect with people through that story of brokenness, because if you think about it, if you've been on Camino as Pilgrim, and it's kind of funny, when I came back, I remember so many people, I live in the Bible Belt here in the South, and when I came back to my church community, they said, oh, it must have been such a tremendous experience being around so many people of faith and, well, you know, and I said, no, 
I said, you don't understand. There is more brokenness on the Camino than a lot of other places in the world and people who are so broken that they don't even realize they're broken. So in that regard, it's, it's an incredible mission field. But yeah, my book was intended for people who had experienced a lot of the, the difficult things that, that I had as well. Mm. You've both brought up the issue of intentions, what you intended or what you hope to accomplish in your books. Zooming out to thinking about advice for people who are considering writing about their own stories. What are the most important decisions for an aspiring author to reach in those opening stages when they're just setting out to begin the writing process? The thing, because you're right, because there have been so many books published, especially in the last few years, the most important question for me is, what do you bring that's different? What about your story or the way you want to tell your story or the way you want to frame your story makes it stand out from the books that are already on the shelf? Why would a reader choose your story as opposed to someone else's? And it might be a difference in perspective. It may be, you know, one of the reasons that Walking to the End of the World stands out on the shelves is because I walked a part of the Camino that very few people walk. I started in Le Puy in France, and my first half of my journey, my first 35 days, were in France, which is something that I had really struggled to find anything written about. So what is it that you bring that's different? The Camino Francais is very well covered from a travel diary perspective, but maybe you have, you know, Steve writes about brokenness. That brings a different kind of theme to it. What is it that would make that different? And also, what is it that would make it more than that travel diary? more than the, I walked, I ate, I slept, I repeated. <laughs> a good narrative has this underlying theme that rises above that repetition. And so if you can identify that before you get started, it makes your later writing and revision much easier. Steve? Dave, one of the things I would refer your listeners to actually is Beth's blog. And I think it's at BethJacino.com. And she has the thing that she just mentioned, She's got a blog post, and I think it's titled, What's the Big Idea? Mm -hmm. And Beth, I wish I could take a picture and show you right now, but I actually have the four or five main points from that blog post written on a dry erase board in my office where I can see it. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. And, I mean, this is my writing spot, and just above and to my left, I mean, there's an entire dry erase board dedicated to that blog post. She talks about what's the big idea, why is this approach different, what's new about this idea, a lot about, you know, this phrase that we call felt need in the nonfiction world. But anyway, that's my plug for Beth's blog. <laughs> I would say from my personal perspective, the first thing a prospective author should think about is why. Mm -hmm. Why am I writing this? Am I writing it for further clarification of my own experience? Am I writing it to convey a felt need to a bigger audience. Speaking of audience, if it is an audience to whom you intend to write, the question is, who is that audience? Who is my tribe? Beth and I have talked a lot about this, too. And during the time when we walked on our first pilgrimage, but we both walked first back in 2015, American Pilgrims on Camino, their Facebook forum was a lot more liberal in what they allowed than, than they are now. <laughs> You know, it was incredible because there was this amazing audience there and you could get by with just about anything. So if you wanted to create an audience there and you had some skills to do it, you could actually do that. That's the second thing. I mean, who is your audience? Who is my tribe? 
And I would say the third thing to think about, especially if you're kind of new at this, is where is my creative space? Where am I and what are the things that I'm doing that cause me to be the most creative, that cause my mind to think kind of outside the box? I learned on Camino and it was reinforced after Camino that a simple 30 or 40 minute walk in my neighborhood is my number one creative place. There is something different about how the creative part of my brain functions when I'm on a walk. Was it Thoreau that talked about that and saw that you're on Yolanda? It is solved by walking. Yeah. I mean, that's true. It's so true. So why? Who's my audience and where's my creative space? I've been reading research on walking recently, and it's backed up by the research that, and there's an optimal pace, right? It's going not too slowly, but not so quickly that you actually have to think consciously about how you're pushing yourself. There's an optimal speed, and it does promote creativity. Mm -hmm. As your body moves and your blood moves, you get to have that thought process. Your mind gets to wander in ways that it doesn't when you're in a place that has more immediate distraction, I think. But yes, Steve's point about the why is also really important. I I run into a lot of people in my day job, but also in Camino events who say, oh, all of my friends and family say I should write this down. And so that's why I want to write a book is that other people are encouraging me. And there's a difference within writing something down, like Steve said, for your own personal processing or to share it with the people who are closest to you and know you. And the why question is also Do you have something that you're ready to share beyond your inner circle? Are you prepared for utter strangers on the other side of the world to read this and judge it? And do you have a message for them? Do you have a purpose for sharing with them? Sometimes writing should be a personal experience, and that is an incredibly valuable time. But if you want to write and publish, then you need to know why you want to publish. And that's a whole different animal. (laughs) (laughs) So we've touched on a few different issues that I want to talk about in more detail, and it really is some thinking points for aspiring writers. You've talked about the different kinds of books that can be written about the Camino, and I think of Pilgrim Strong as a book about Steve Watkins set on the Camino. And Beth, I think about your book as a book about the Camino featuring Beth Jacino, right? So it's Absolutely. That is exactly what I want you to think. (laughs) (laughs) So it's reflective of the different weighting. And I tend to think that Camino journals weave together kind of three main things. There's background or context on the pilgrimage, on the Camino itself. We all know when that book is about to go into that two to three page summation of St. James and the, (laughs) the, the founding of the pilgrimage. It's like, all right, here we go. There's the description of the journey without, so the daily walking, the other pilgrims, the tending to blisters, and then there's the description of the journey within, the personal story that's behind it. And and most, pretty much all pilgrim diaries balance those three elements just to different degrees. So I want to think about some issues connected to that, that waiting. The first one is context. If you're writing a book about the Camino, How much background do you need to provide? How deep do you need to go about the Camino for the story to be compelling? How did you approach that? And and what do you think is is advisable for authors? 
in addition to being friends and fellow pilgrims, Beth and I have a professional relationship. I have consulted with her on, on some past projects, and she's actually the developmental editor for my work in progress that I hope to be released later this fall. And one of the things that a good developmental editor will coach you on is this notion of show and don't tell. When we come home from an experience like this, we feel this unique ownership. As a human, I think, we feel this unique ownership of the experience that we've just had. But if we are going to become a storyteller, and this is another phrase that I have written above my head, and I look at it every day, if you're going to tell the story... The story no longer belongs to you. It belongs to the reader now. And so when we think about this idea of showing versus telling, the easy thing is to tell the story. This happened and this happened and this happened. But as Beth has so often reminded me and helped to improve my writing, she reinforces the idea of helping the reader understand the context through the story. It's just a different experience for the reader, whether they actually are consciously aware of it or not. It's a different experience if I'm telling them something as opposed to me taking a higher view, looking down from 20,000 feet and bringing them into the story. I mean, I can tell you what a horrible person if I'm writing a memoir about my dad, I mean, I can tell you about what a horrible person he was, and how he did this and he did that. Or I can tell you a story of crawling into a corner one morning and crying and wondering what was going to happen in my home over the next hour. Now, I'm just kind of making that up as I go, mm -hmm. but I think the point is there. When you get to the point where you're telling too much of the story, as opposed to helping the reader understand the story, I think that's when you're stepping across the line of context. Beth? Wow. Well, thank you. <laughs> I guess he already said your part for you, huh? <laughs> you know, and I also like the fact that Steve says, as she reminds me, as opposed to as she nags me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Steve's response to saying context is important is part of where I came down a lot within this Camino discussion and the writing. As we continue to have this conversation, I'll probably keep coming back to what you just said, which is I wrote a book in which I wanted the Camino to be the centerpiece. And so if that is the case, then the history of the Camino also needs to be much deeper and more involved than if I was going to write a book that was primarily my emotional journey primarily my inner processing where the Camino is the backdrop. Maybe at that point, then particular stories of how old a bridge is or what the earliest pilgrims used as their travel guides was less relevant. So again, it comes back to partly what is your purpose and what is your goal in terms of the context. So I think I have a lot more history in my book than most of the first person narratives I have read Mm -hmm. But I think that that's okay, because I think that that's part of the purpose. And I also think that we discover subtle differences in the ways that different writers write the history. You know, I write with more humor than a lot of the other writers write, especially when it comes to the history. I don't mind calling out 
the unusual or ridiculous even miracles. And I have a lot of fun with the chickens that came back to life in Santo Domingo or the different stories that point to the history and the culture and the long-term stories that happened within that time period. But if I was writing a different book, it probably wouldn't be as appropriate. When it comes to the personal stories, we've touched on that a couple of times, and and clearly there's a decision that's been made. Steve made the choice to be tremendously open about Mm -hmm. his life and his background. And you talk about yourself and your partner, but not with the same degree of transparency, I suppose. How do you make that decision? And how do you balance honesty and openness and really like telling the story as it really was while also protecting your own privacy and the privacy of loved ones? I think that's such an important question. And I think that everyone makes their own decisions about what they're comfortable and what parts of their lives they're comfortable putting out into the world and what parts of their lives belong to them. There are pieces of my story, including my story on the Camino, that don't belong to the world. But I think from a broader perspective, I would say how much context is enough, enough to make yourself relatable. You need to be open enough so that people understand who you are as a unique person. You should be able to read two pages of my writing and two pages of Steve's and have a good sense of where our personalities lie and where our voices are different. And I also think when it's not self-serving, if that makes sense, that I have seen manuscripts, and I'm not talking about Camino-specific ones, but where a writer was open and vulnerable to the point of making it difficult for the rest of their relationships. And it felt like they were publicly processing things that needed to be private. Mm. As a professional, I see this a lot in people who write about how terrible their divorce was or something like that. But when a writer has put thought into what pieces of themselves they are opening up and they are comfortable with that, I don't know that there's a wrong answer. I think that it is very specific to the person. It is absolutely very specific to the person and it's a great question it's a very difficult question to answer i i dealt with those questions with pilgrim strong i am currently dealing with them with my work in progress because it is equally as transparent or more a book than pilgrim strong was i'm not going to talk a lot about this but one of the differences in the pilgrimage experience I had versus the experience that Beth had was that I remained connected to social media on 80% of my walk. That's a long story, and I could tell you how that happened and why it happened, but I, I won't go into that, but it did happen. And so going into the book writing process, I had a fair sense for what I felt worked and did not work with my audience. So I had that, but I guess To try to more specifically answer that question, Dave, yeah, how do you know what to include and what not to include and protect people's privacy? Gosh, I kind of come down at a point where, and I'm never going to do anything to call someone out or embarrass someone or put them in a difficult situation. That's not what I'm about and certainly would never want to do that. But if there is some way that that story can be told, I'll give you a quick example. I met a guy from France. I'll never forget him. His name was Jeanique Guerin. Mm -hmm. And one morning we met, and we had this fascinating conversation. He was a really smart guy. He was a French guy who had lived in Australia most of his life. And toward the end of this conversation, he said, I'll never forget, he said, I've come back to say goodbye to France. Now, based on the context of the discussion that we had had before, I knew what that meant. 
Jean-Ique was chronically ill. He had lung cancer. He had worked in the coal mines in Australia. Hmm. And he had come back to say goodbye. But, you know, once he said that, I never asked him another question. And I told the story just as I just told it to you. Made no inferences. I kind of let the reader assess that for themselves. But for me, if there is some higher purpose to communicating the message of the story or without putting the subject in an awkward situation, I'm going to lean toward telling the story because that's what I want my readers to have is a deep, meaningful experience that makes them even more introspective about themselves. That makes sense. It's a funny thing because I consume Pilgrim books voraciously and I appreciate the compilation of stories. That's a big part of what pilgrimage is, right? We we hear other stories, we're open, we share them down the road. And I don't think twice about it. But as I was preparing for this, I tried to imagine a scenario in which I am walking with another pilgrim on the Camino, and I am particularly open that day, and I, I tell a really deeply personal story, and then I find it in a book down the road. I think I would be mm-hmm. horrified. So I I feel this tension between that openness and this, this question of who owns the story in the end. Yeah. That's a great question. And it's something, I confess, of the things that I thought about before I started writing, the reactions of my fellow pilgrims who I met was not at the top of my <laughs> list. It didn't really occur to me until I was much closer to being done. And I followed a couple of guidelines in my own writing. One is that... I should always be wrong more often than anyone else on the page. (laughs) Don't create villains out of people who are not there to defend themselves. I am not here to put myself on a pedestal and say, I did it right. I think actually my Camino story is a series of ways I didn't do it right. And other people did it and showed me and taught me along the way. I feel like the stories that I shared about the people were stories that I would feel comfortable saying in front of them. If they were in the room and I was reading from the book, Would I be okay with them hearing me say, I met this person and they told me this story? Which means I don't have a lot of intimate details about other people along the way. And if there are people who are perhaps portrayed in a negative way, I only use nicknames. We're Camino pilgrims, right? We use nicknames (laughs) to describe people anyway. Oh, it's the German couple or, you know, however we're going to refer to people. But I tried to make sure that if it wasn't something that was going to be necessarily flattering. And there are some funny, there are some stories I think are funny in there about interactions that maybe don't portray the other person in the most flattering way. But I want to make sure that you can't recognize them from those things. I will also say that since the book has come out, the people who I'm still in touch with who have read it have all been very supportive and are kind of excited to see themselves cameo. (laughs) To me, the most challenging thing about writing about the Camino is one of the things that makes it great, which is the fact that it is so wonderfully repetitive. Mm -hmm. Every day is kind of the same day. You wake up, you walk, you think about how your feet hurt, you eat, you think about how your feet hurt some more, (laughs) you see a pretty church, you have an interesting conversation and a nice personal reflection, and then you find an albergue and get ready to do it all over again. And those of us who have done it love it, and that's what makes it so hard to explain to others in our lives why we enjoy it so much. That makes it really hard when you have 35 or however many of those days to try to push into 
a narrative. So from your perspective, how should writers manage that aspect of the Camino and avoid the trap of it seeming stagnant and repetitive? For me, Dave, that's the beauty of the storytelling, and that's where the storytelling comes into place. And in the 18 months that it took to write that manuscript, there were many mornings when I would go out for that 40-minute walk, and it would begin with a, you know, with a completely blank slate. I would end the day kind of knowing the direction that I was going in tomorrow morning. But honestly, I mean, there were many days when there was a blank slate. And so you go out and you have this walk and a story comes to mind. Maybe it's a character. Maybe it's a circumstance. You know, whatever it is. And in my way of thinking, when I think that story through in a color sort of way, I began to think about it from the perspective of what can that story illustrate? What can it illustrate to our life story or or to our everyday living or to our journey of faith or or whatever it can be? And so I began to kind of weave the story with, we talked about it, that felt need, right? What felt need does this story evoke for a reader? And that's how many of my chapters in Pilgrim Strong evolved. And honestly, I mean, that's kind of the way I write in general. Beth and I have used this word about my writing. I wish that it weren't so much this way, but it is. I mean, it's very much an essayist kind of style. That's not great if you're trying to sell lots of of books out there in the world. But that is my natural style is as an essayist. But that's the way I see breaking up the monotony of that day-to-day routine that you're talking about. And one thing that I'll just call attention to as you say that is I read a number of books where I can see the why that the author has found, and I can see it established at the beginning, and I can see them arriving it at the end, but they sometimes lose it on the day-to-day where they kind of fall prey to the telling. And I think that is one of the things that works really well in Pilgrim Strong is there's a why that's embedded in every chapter, and there's an overarching why as well. Absolutely. Steve has the journalism background of being able to, in a very concise way, tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and end, and a message. He's also what, in the writing community, we talk about, more in fiction than in nonfiction, but we talk about there are people who are plotters. They sit down and they (laughs) outline everything. And there are people who we call pantsers because they write by the seat of their pants. (laughs) And I am absolutely a plotter. I... I had read a lot of the stories by the time I started writing, and I I knew that part of the challenge was going to be walk, eat, sleep, repeat, and finding those pieces. And so I sat down and thought about what an overall structure was so that I could take somebody on a larger journey more than the day-to-day pieces. And I wrote down a list of what I would call the turning points, the days or the conversations or the interactions where something changed either inside me or in our situation, whether it was, you know, fixing a situation with wearing the wrong shoes or whether it was having a conversation that just opened up a whole new perspective. And starting with those turning points, there's an author named Lisa Dale Norton who wrote a book called Shimmering Images that is my favorite resource for writing memoir. And she talks about finding those moments where things stand out from the normal and then building the book around those, but also having that outline in that journey of, I couldn't write about every single day of my trip. My trip was 79 days (laughs) from start to finish. The book would have been like 500 pages, but I could find those moments that were 
either descriptive in the way that I wanted to help readers understand what the Camino was or descriptive in my own journey. And I could kind of work from one of those moments to the next and work some of that history that we talked about in to change the pace, to change the rhythm, to change the style along the way. I've been thinking a lot about memory lately. As I was walking this year, I was forcing myself to write at the end of each day's walk in detail. So really trying to churn out a complete piece of writing, not just short notes. It's exhausting. But one of the things that stood out to me is I found that a number of pieces that I wrote were much more cringe-inducing upon reread (laughs) because they were caught up in the emotions of the moment. And at the end of a long walk, often the emotions in the short term are negative, right? You're exhausted, and it's a lot easier to focus on what's annoying than on what's uplifting. So there's this process I've found when I think about a day's walk that... In the immediate aftermath, I might be negative, and a a week later, I might see some of the silver linings. And then, of course, after I get home two months down the road, it's like the greatest thing I've ever experienced in my life. So depending upon when I'm writing about it, my perception of that walk is different. My perceived truth of what happened is different. So I'm wondering, for each of you, as you thought about your experiences, as you wrote about them both on the walk and then after you got home and you constructed your narratives, how did you approach that? How do you approach the lived experience that was real in the moment and then subsequently the meaning or the truth that you created or constructed out of it? Can I start on that one? Because I want to come back to something that Steve said before that he kind of hinted at that I think is important in understanding how we both came to the journey itself. We both walked in 2015. I walked from April to June, and Steve, you started in November, right? Late October. Okay, so a couple months after I got home. So I was on the American Pilgrims Facebook page a lot during that time (laughs) and watched Steve would live stream his messages while he was walking almost every day, it felt like, Mm -hmm. and was incredibly open and honest about what was happening right in this second. And... As someone who is a writing processor, much more than a talking or a face-to-face processor, I was just blown away by the level of honesty and the level of vulnerability that that showed in kind of processing through the emotions in real time and in real places. And I think that probably by the time you got back to writing, your experience was already out there. So you may as well put it all on the table. (laughs) Whereas for me, I I had journaled every day. I had written things, you know, I had a notebook that I vented kind of the way you were talking about. There's a whole lot of emotion on a bad day when my feet hurt (laughs) that nobody ever needs to see. My husband should not even see that notebook. But with the benefit of coming back to it a few months later, with the benefit of having done the whole journey, you know, the second week feels a lot different once you get to the 12th or the 15th week. Mm -hmm. And being able to look at it as a whole, I got to take the emotional moments that are come through in those journals. And I try to be honest that there are bad days and there are tears and there are frustrations and there are fights without lingering too long on them the way I would have if I was trying to describe them in that moment. Yeah, I would have begun to answer that question the same way. Let me say this out of the gate. I would advise 99% of everyone going on pilgrimage not to do what I did, (laughs) not take that wide open social media approach on pilgrimage. 
I did not do that for the first four days. By the time I got to Pamplona, I was miserable because I realized I was surrounded by all these incredible people with all these incredible stories, and my heart needed to tell these stories. <laughs> and so I literally said a prayer when I went to bed that night, and I said, God, if you don't close this door, I'm going to walk through it tomorrow. So here we go. You better close it if you're going to. And on the walk toward Alto de Perdon, I fired the platform back up and started telling the story on YouTube and Twitter and, and, and Facebook and maybe a couple of other platforms. But <laughs> when I came back, I mean, I could go back and look at some of those things. You know, I can look at the body language. I can hear the tone of voice and remember very clearly what I was feeling and what I was experiencing. And on top of the fact that I think in and of itself, the pilgrimage experience without having done that platform would have been more intense than just the average ordinary experience somewhere else. It was a profound thing for me. And I remember specifically thinking about halfway through, because I spent a lot of time by myself. I was alone on my first pilgrimage by design. And I spent a lot of time by myself and I was going for a purpose and I was thinking a lot. And I remember thinking somewhere around the middle of the Meseta, I am literally sick of myself. <laughs> I am sick of thinking about myself and talking to myself and thinking about all these problems. I'm going to throw up. I'm so sick of myself. So it's an intense experience without all the social media stuff. I feel like lockdown has put me in that place. I'm just sick of myself. Can I please talk to yeah. someone else? <laughs> Anyone. <laughs> Your books have been out for a few years now? Fall of 2018, so almost two years. I was November 17th. Knowing what you know now of having your stories out in the world, is there anything you would go back and change in what you wrote or what you put out there or, or what you decided not to include? I don't know how to answer that question because you told us that you were going to ask it and I've been thinking about <laughs> it. Two years later, I am still incredibly proud of this book and incredibly proud of the story that is told there. Are there small things that I would love to change? Would I love to add a little bit more detail or cut a little bit more or use a different word? Of course. I don't have anything dramatic about the experience. Like, I don't think I have anything dramatic about what is in the book. What I didn't know, even being someone who works in book publishing, and I know a lot of authors who have published books before me, is how much putting your Camino story out there, putting a memoir of any kind out there, kind of changed my relationship with it. Mm. The Camino is now part of my public self in a way that I feel responsible for it in different ways than when I was not, when it was just something that I was sharing with my friends and family and it was more mine. As people have definitely talked to me about what my next book is, you know, what are you going to write next? I've been really thoughtful about what that would be. What is something that I would be ready to share again? I've been back to the Camino twice since the stories of that book, and I didn't write much about either of them. And I think that I own those in different ways. So I think that's what surprised me. It's neither a good nor a bad thing. It's mm -hmm. absolutely worth it. But I think I could have been more prepared for that. She made so many points that were right on there. It is true that when you when you write a book about the Camino that does get you know some attention, you become identified in that way as a pilgrim author. Mm -hmm. And I may or may not write about pilgrimage again at some point in my life. In a much broader sense, it helps me find an identity 
as a pilgrim in the bigger world. And I think everything that I write about moving forward to some degree will be about pilgrimage in that metaphorical sense, you know, the, the search for truth that we're all on. Mechanically, the one thing I wish that I had done differently, and I actually worked pretty hard at it, I cut my teeth as a journalist, worked in the newspaper and magazine world. I honestly thought this transition from journalist to working in the literary world would be, as we say in the South, as easy as falling off a log backwards, right? I thought it would be easy. (laughs) That shows you the naivety that I had going into the process because it is a huge transition going from one style to the next. And I am still learning lessons about this every day. And I worked really hard in the beginning to make Pilgrim Strong a traditionally published book. At a certain point, I got tired. I felt like I had a good story. I felt like I had a good team in place to to create a good self-published book. And the truth is, there's not one aspect of this process in book publishing that I don't completely love. And I'm not just saying, I mean, I love the writing I love working with the designers. I love the process of the long, lengthy process of developing a cover. And believe it or not, I love selling. If you've created something that you believe in, that's the easiest thing in the world to sell. And so I did self-publish the book, and it had a good bit more, and it still has. I mean, it's still actually selling pretty well, but... I always felt like that book had a a bigger place in the commercial world, Mm -hmm. and I just, I got a little impatient with it, and that's not to say that I'm not very proud of it, because I am, and ended up the following year, I mean, I think I spoke at 53 REIs across the country from San Francisco to Potomac, Maryland in 2018. Inevitably, the most rewarding part of that were people who had experienced the same kind of depression that I had experienced and talked very openly about. And I, well, I think I'm, I, don't, I think I'm going to cry as I'm talking about it right now, but as they would come to me after the talk and say, thank you. Thank you for speaking about this. Thank you for telling people what it's like to feel so empty and to have such difficulty just walking to the mailbox to get the mail. You really helped me in my journey with that. And so if nothing else, it was worth it for those people who had that relative experience to the writing. You bring up an interesting point that we didn't really talk about is that part of your writing and publishing journey was the decision to bring it out sooner rather than waiting for a traditional publisher and the decision to be able to manage that whole process yourself. And that I took the opposite path where I looked at What did I want this book to do? And one of the things I knew I wanted the book to do is I wanted it to be on the shelves in physical bookstores. And that is one of the hardest things to do when you're self-publishing. And so I took a longer, slower route and worked with a traditional publisher who has been phenomenal. I work with a small independent press that focuses on bringing people into the outdoors. So they're like my perfect partner on this. And I'm very glad that I worked with them. And they've gotten it into places that I could never have gotten that book myself. And... You know, you talk about the feedback that you get. There's a lot of work in writing a book, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of work in releasing a book. The process of being an author after the book comes out is almost as exhausting, if not more so, than when you were writing the book itself. But there's always those surprises. I'm on a 
Facebook group called Camigas, which is for women who walk the Camino. And I opened it up a couple of months ago, and there's a photograph from somebody I've never met, have no idea who she is. And it's a picture of my book and her cat. And I went, oh, that's cool. And it's the story of how she is someone who has dreamed of doing the Camino for the longest time and is incredibly intimidated by it doesn't even want to tell people that she has this dream. It doesn't even want to tell people that she's thinking about it. And she finally brought herself into a small bookstore in Northern California that I've never been to and had to talk herself into walking up to the counter and asking if they had any books about the Camino, about pilgrimage. Because what would they think? Would they look at her and judge her for thinking she could do something like that? And she got my book. The bookstore gave her my book. Hmm. And like I said, I wrote this book for you to understand that I am a klutz who walked a thousand miles and you can too. And she had started reading it and realized it was exactly the book and the words that she needed to begin her pilgrimage. And that, I mean, that makes everything worth it. couple questions to wrap up here, hoping to offer a little bit further inspiration for people who are thinking about writing. What is a or what are some pilgrimage stories you haven't read yet that maybe don't exist yet that you'd like to? I would love to see people writing about the various routes and the various paths that are part of the Camino. I think that some of the most enlightening things are when we put up maps that say the Camino is not just this one path from St. Jean to Santiago, but it's this network that goes all the way back into Europe and crisscrosses. And there's four historic routes across France that are part of the earliest stories of the Camino. And I see very little of that. I would love to see stories written from the other four French routes specifically, but that's me. And I love the French food, so I want to go back to France. It's the best. It's so good. I'd also love to see more of the younger voices or the different cultures. I think we see a lot of Americans writing about the Camino, and that's because we have American publishing and American distribution. But I met a lot of people from different places, and I met a lot of people from different cultures that I think are not as represented in what I've seen written. And so I'd love to see that. There's a young adult novel I'm seeing a lot more fiction that is Camino related this mm -hmm. year. But there's a young adult novel about a group of LGBTQ kids who are walking that's coming out this fall from an author named Kevin Craig. And I'm so excited for him to have the book come out. But I'm so excited to see this kind of different perspective on what it looks like as well. Steve? I think I might like to see a book written on what Camino magic really is. You know what Camino magic really is? What's hmm. that? Let me tell you what Camino Magic is. <laughs> uh, I wish I could take credit for this, but I can't. But it's a conversation that I had. One of the very first really, really, really interesting people I met on pilgrimage, his name was Heinrich. And he had been a hospitalero at Powderborn for many years. And so we had this conversation about Camino Magic, and I'm a skeptical journalist. And I'm trying to get him to talk about it. And just take a moment. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast... And think about the world that we are living in at this moment and the circumstances that surround us and just the complete madness that we find ourselves in. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But then shift your mind, mate, if you've been on pilgrimage or if you aspire to go on pilgrimage, think about the dynamic of what it's like to be there for this unique moment in time at this unique, special place, there are people from every corner of the globe who come together and they are moving in the same direction 
with the same purpose. And beyond that, we are all cheering one another on. That is Camino magic. And there are very few places and very few circumstances right now that allow us to experience that. And I personally think it is the beauty of pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago. And that's the way I think of Camino magic. And I think it would be interesting to go further into that dynamic. I would also encourage riders. Here's the way I think about riding on the Camino. The book doesn't have to be about pilgrimage. It doesn't have to be about the Camino. I think of the Camino as as this magical, beautiful canvas on which any story, any story can be painted or told. And you just have to go there and experience that and let it happen. It will happen or it won't happen. Maybe it won't. But it is this miracle place. and, And I don't use words like this a lot. It is this miracle place where good happens. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. Okay, last question. I'm sure there are people listening to this who have been thinking for a long time about writing their stories, but inertia is a powerful thing. It is hard to break through. They need that last push. What can you tell them to start this process? A lot of the things that we previously talked about, know your creative space, know who you're writing to, very importantly, know why you're doing this. And I didn't necessarily adhere to this early in my writing career. I mean, I don't know that I would advise against it now. John Grisham has uh, what I think is some really pretty good advice for people who want to write a book. And he says, sit down every day at your place and write a page. A page is about 250 or 300 words. But get into that habit of writing a page a day. It's a little difficult for me to do that. That's not my natural style. But for someone who is like we're talking about, is trying to launch this thing, get off the ground, sit down, write a page a day. You know what? If you take off on the weekends, you're out five days a week. At the end of the year, you got 300 pages. I mean, you got a book. Yeah. Beth? I think you have to know yourself, and I think you have to know what it takes for you to launch something. Because for me, writing a page a day or having a regular writing schedule did not work as well as turning everything off, setting aside focused time for longer periods of time. It was about November of 2015 when I started to think, oh, I think I have something here. I think I need to do something about it. And I actually, November is definitely the off season for the beaches in the Pacific Northwest. It's windy and cold and miserable. And so I took myself to a beach hotel about three hours from home, checked in in the middle of the week. So I was the only guest in the entire hotel and had no excuse to not sit down and wrestle with this project and understand what it was going to be, what the outline was, how I was going to support it, and start putting words on a page without any of those other distractions. And I wrote, I went back twice more during the writing. I wrote about half of the book in that beachside motel room on rainy winter days because I needed to clear out everything in order to give it the attention that it needed. But I know people who writing for an hour in the morning is great for them. So whatever it is that you need to do to set aside focused time and make this a priority, it's not going to happen if you're casual about it. It's only going to happen if you sit down and get serious. That was kind of a bummer of a way to end. <laughs> and hey, it was rock solid. 
So much of life is figuring out how you keep messing things up for yourself and building the rails, the safeguards around it to keep yourself on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And to give yourself time to reflect on it. Give yourself the chance to relive that experience. Spend time with your photographs. Spend time with the sounds. Spend time with the people to put yourself back in that place and find the story that you want to have. Giving yourself the chance to relive that that is so... I remember, gosh, it's funny because as active as I was on social media on pilgrimage and telling the stories, I remember specifically sitting at the airport in Madrid. I was about to get on the plane, and I sent Dana a text. I was so worried and so concerned that I was going to get home, and mostly family members, to be honest with you. I was worried that they were going to come up and say something like, oh, well, how was your vacation? Or, or <laughs> tell me what, what was your favorite part? <laughs> and I knew that if those, and it's just a matter of not understanding the experience, but if someone had asked me a question like that, I would have had a meltdown. <laughs> and so I said to Dana, I said, you got to protect me when I get home. Keep these people away from me. And I took a month. I took a solid month to kind of be alone again. Good deal. Well, thank you both. Thank you for sharing stories of your own publishing experiences and then also offering some really helpful advice. I've enjoyed this a lot. Absolutely. Thanks so much for setting this up. This was fun. I think it was in Ellen Aviva's Following the Milky Way, where I first heard of the Camino characterized as a palimpsest, and that metaphor has stuck with me ever since. Parchment in the Middle Ages was expensive. If an old page of text was no longer useful or relevant, a scribe wouldn't crumple it up and toss it into a recycling bin like we would today. They washed or scraped off the text and then reused it. However, the original words often survived, albeit in far fainter condition. It's thanks to this that some critical ancient texts managed to be recovered and preserved as a very happy accident. That is a palimpsest, a parchment with layers of text, like an archaeological dig, one story superimposed upon another. And that, indeed, is the Camino, a parchment upon which we all get to walk our stories, a shared topography marked with each of our distinct narratives, changing us while it too is changed by us. If you've been thinking for a long time about writing about your pilgrimage, for whatever purpose, I hope this episode offered some guidance, some inspiration, maybe even a kick in the pants to get the ball rolling. It's a way to be on pilgrimage right now, even if you're sheltering in place. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Beth Cicino. You can find her Camino writing at CaminoTimes2.com, while her writing and editing home is BethGicino.com, and Gicino is J-U-S-I-N-O. Thanks as well to Steve Watkins for his second tour of duty. You can find him at stevewatkins.org. Their books, Walking to the End of the World and Pilgrim Strong, respectively, are accessible through their sites and online bookstores everywhere. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWitson.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. <laughs>